He was a good-looking young bloke, but he had a black heart. He'd been locked up for maybe 10 years for kicking a man to death outside a nightclub in King Street. He has a very sinister past because people close to him sometimes die. You would think not a burglary gone wrong. You would think more like an actual execution. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, I'm going to do something different. We're going to review a true crime drama, or preview it, for those who haven't seen it. Now, no work of art is exactly like real life, but some works of art are a lot closer than others. For instance, it's interesting that real mobsters in New York asked around to see who was leaking information to the people writing The Sopranos because they said no one could write this stuff unless they were getting the real information from real gangsters. And that was probably the greatest compliment that those filmmakers could get. And I'm here to say that an Australian production called Mr. In Between is up in that class. It is, for me, the best Australian crime drama, if not drama, pure and simple, since Blue Murder, Chopper and Underbelly, not to mention others such as Janus and Phoenix. Why am I going on about a television show? Because it strikes me that we can now talk about some of the events during the gangland war in Melbourne that seem to come straight from Mr. Inbetween. Mr. Inbetween is, for those who haven't seen it, the ongoing episodic story of a Sydney-based hitman who works as a bouncer in a nightclub and periodically goes out and whacks people, as he says, for money. It sounds brutally simple, and in some respects it is, but it's more complicated than it sounds, which is exactly what real life is, more complicated than it seems. And two things have come to light in the last week or so that could go straight into an episode or two episodes of Mr. Between, And those two things are, in a way, linked. First of all, we have recent publicity about the jailing many years ago of a guy called Ange Gusis. Now, his real name was Evangelos Gusis, a good Greek name. He was a uh, good Greek boy until he was a bad Greek boy. He was a boxer, but probably a better kickboxer as a youngster. And indeed, he was a very tough kickboxer because we know that he fought a guy called Sam Solomon. And Sam Solomon was one of the best at the business for many years. And this guy, Goose, as they call him for short, fought Sam to a points decision. And that took a bit of doing. And one thing Goose had, Goose being his nickname, naturally, one thing he had was plenty of heart, plenty of ticker, plenty of loyalty. And sadly, instead of just settling down to lead a quiet life, perhaps you know running a gym or teaching guys how to box and working at nightclubs as a bouncer or whatever and getting a house in the suburbs, he went the wrong way, as sometimes happens with those sort of guys, and he ended up as a washed-up fighter 
running around with gangsters, with gunmen, drug dealers and those sort of people. And in fact, Goose, as they called him, became more or less apprenticed to a man whose real name we cannot use. It's a name that many people out there will have heard in the past. For the purposes of this show, we'll call him Snake Eyes. He would be in anything that involved making a lot of money and no work. And one of the things he would do after getting heavily involved in serious crimes is to lie his way out of it by implicating others. A very dangerous, treacherous man. And that takes us to the events of May the 8th, 2004, at the height of the gangland war, as we call it, or the underbelly war, or the underworld war, whatever war we want to call it, May the 8th, 2004, at an inner suburban pub in Carlton. And that pub had a strange clientele. It had a few students, a few firemen, and a lot of knockabouts and crooks. It was that sort of place. It was actually run by a former Carlton footballer who didn't mind having a TAB in the place and attracted a lot of knockabout patrons, but not his fault, really. On the night in question, the man that we are calling Snake Eyes was drinking with Gooses, our friend Goose, who was effectively his apprentice gunman. And they're drinking in this pub, I think, pints of Guinness. And they're drinking with a guy called Lewis Kane. Now, this is not to be confused with the Kane brothers. This is not one of the notorious brothers whose name is spelt K-A-N-E. This guy, his name is spelt C-A-I-N-E. He has various other names, but he was best known as Lewis Kane. He was a good-looking young bloke, but he had a black heart. He'd been locked up for maybe 10 years for kicking a man to death outside a nightclub in King Street. So his entry to the underworld was via a senseless act of violence which put him inside with a lot of very violent men. And apparently he could hold his own in jail and was pretty willing, as they say. And he got a bit of a reputation. And when he got out of jail, he decided that he was a gangster and that he was going to run around with the real gangsters in their big cars and their guns and their unexplained wealth. That was his idea of a good future. And at one point, he took up with the then relatively unknown criminal solicitor, Zara Gard Wilson. She represented him on a minor charge, I think a drink driving charge, and she was quite uh, taken with him. He was a good-looking guy, as we said. He was apparently quite charming when he wanted to be. And he had that sort of whiff of uh, menace and danger that appeals to some people. And she actually lived with him for a couple of years. But it was clear to everyone who knew him, including Zara, I would think, that he was destined for trouble. And in fact, he found himself in the middle of the underworld war taking sides with people, which was a very dangerous thing to do because none of these people trusted anyone and they all were suspicious of each other and they were especially suspicious of someone like Lewis Kane, who was notoriously thin-skinned, bad-tempered, dangerous and probably uh, willing 
to kill anyone if the money was right. That was certainly the impression he gave people because at some point some people who he thought were friends of his turned against him. And so on this night in this hotel in Carlton on a Saturday night, he's drinking with Goose and with Snake Eyes and he's thinking that he's among friends. But he's starting to annoy the people around him because he's short of money and he keeps snipping other people for dough. He snipped, I think, a couple of hundred dollars from Goose and I think he snipped $500 from Snake Eyes just to be able to shout his share of drinks. And when he went to the bathroom at some stage, Snake Eyes turned to his mate Goose and he said, I'm going to whack this guy. Well, words that effect, he said something rather stronger than that. But basically, he said he was going to kill the bloke, kill Lewis Kane. Apparently, this flash of anger blew over because before the night was out, he said quietly to his mate Goose, he said, oh, what I said before, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. And apparently, Goose's allegedly believed him. Now, we don't really know if he believed him or not, but that's the story. The two friends, that is Goose and Snake Eyes, said, why don't we go and have dinner? I know this good restaurant in Fitzroy. One of them at around 10 o'clock rings the restaurant in Fitzroy and says, have you got a table for three? And the restaurant says, yes. And they said, well, we'll see you fairly soon. And after they have another drink, they hop in their black SUV, which one of them called the Soprano car for a joke, and they drive off into the night. Now, as far as Lewis Kane knows, he's going for a late-night souvlaki or whatever at the restaurant where they're booked, but they don't get to the restaurant. Instead, they drive up into Brunswick and Snake Eyes, the treacherous man that he is, produces a thirty-eight pistol from about his person where it's hidden and this, according to some witnesses, has had the hammer filed down so that it won't catch in his clothing, a trick that some of the old-time crooks would use. They would file the hammer off so that it would slide smoothly out of a pocket without catching. And he put it up against Lewis Kane, who was half drunk and not watching, and shot him and blew a big hole in Lewis Kane, who bled profusely. It blew blood all over the back of the car. And in fact, I've been told this in the last few days by a senior legal figure, it blew out the back window of the vehicle, which is not something that was known at the time, I don't think, publicly. They then rush off to a dead-end street in Brunswick. I think it was called Kiwana Grove, but it doesn't matter where, really. That's a dead-end street in Brunswick. And Snake Eyes opens the door, drags the still warm body of Lewis Kane into the street and dumps it there and steps back into the car and says, let's go. They clearly did not go to the restaurant. They headed away. The information that reaches me recently, and this is from someone who is a senior judicial figure, someone who back in 2004, 2005, 2006, worked in the prosecutions area of the criminal law, this person assures me that what happened next was that sometime between dumping the body and midnight, that black vehicle, driven by Gooses, we think, 
with the passenger being the killer. Snake eyes. We think. Drives down the road, the curving road that leads from near Melbourne University in Parkville, around through Parkville, past the zoo and out towards Flemington Road. And that is one of those perfect spots where police like to set up breathalysers because it's a long curving road with no exit points. And so once traffic is committed to going down it, in either direction, there's nowhere to hide. You can't turn off. You can't see ahead of you very far. And so it is the perfect spot to put a breathalyser van. And on this night of May the 8th, 2004, indeed, there was a breathalyser van. And when the black car gets there, driven by the getaway driver with the passenger with a pistol still in the car, as far as we know, and blood everywhere and the back window blown out, according to my source, you'd think probably it would catch the police's attention and they'd be caught straight away. But no, luck of the draw, and this is the sort of thing that a scriptwriter could hardly make up, a bored policeman steps out of the queue with the wand and waves that car past the queue because they had too many there for the breathalyzer. And so the killer and his mate were waved through the breathalyzer and a policeman's torch did not fall on the blood or on the shattered back window. And they drove off into the night, I think to the south, where I think later, much later, the murder weapon would be found thrown into deep water. And that little episode with the detail of the breathalyzer is exactly the sort of thing that would dovetail into an episode of Mr In Between. And we'll be back after this. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. There's been some other activity this week that comes out of the gangland war era, which would also dovetail. It's a postscript to one of the greatest true crime stories in Australian history, and that is the sentencing during the week of a very dangerous man called Pasquale Lanciana, as I said, a postscript to the great Richmond cash van heist of 1994. And just to remind listeners of that heist, which most people will recall, it was like something out of a Hollywood caper movie. What we had was a van full of cash, about $2.3 million, loaded up in the city once a week and going via the same route each time it loaded in the city, it would take the same route out of town, down past the MCG, down Brunston Avenue to Punt Road, then turn right into Punt Road and it would head south on Punt Road towards the river and then sit in the left lane and turn left into the slip lane or access lane 
to get onto what is now the Monash Freeway. And this cash van was based in the far southeastern suburbs and every week it had to go to Melbourne and get a lot of money to go down and replenish banks and businesses down in the southeast towards Frankston. And it is a bad policy for cash fans to follow the same route at the same time every week because bad guys get to know and the staff get to know and the staff can have loose lips and tip off the bad guys. These are the things that happen. And indeed, what happened in 1994 was that the bad guys were watching this van and they noticed the pattern that had happened every week at the same time. And what they did on this particular day was to roll out a fantastically planned robbery. And it relied on several moving parts. One was that they had a man with a little tradesman's truck parked right near the MCG so that he would see when the cash van went past and he would start his truck and drop straight in behind the cash van and follow it bumper to bumper around into Punt Road and follow it all the way down to when it turns onto the freeway. That's one moving part. The second moving part, and a totally ingenious one, is that the crooks set up a fake pop-up road mending gang. They had, I think, four or five guys in this fake road crew, and these were guys wearing hard hats, high-vis vests or whatever, overalls, protective glasses, all that sort of stuff, all of which would tend to disguise their appearance because when you see a bunch of guys working on the side of the road dressed similarly, basically none of them stand out from each other unless one is very tall or very fat or something. And these guys were neither very tall nor very fat. They were just, they ran to a type. They probably all looked reasonably strong and fit, as it happens. They had various tools of trade, but mostly the most interesting one was a concrete cutting saw. They had shovels and brooms and bits and pieces. They also had a lollipop sign, a stop and go sign of the lollipop variety used by road workers across this nation. And naturally what they did was to be able to stop the traffic and then let it go. And what they did when the cash van approached was turn it to stop and the cash van stopped. Behind the cash van is the truck we mentioned, which has just enough gear stacked on the back of it to block the view of any drivers queuing behind it. So all those drivers in the cars pulled up behind could not see past the truck and see what was happening to the cash van. At the same time that this happens, one of the workers starts up the concrete saw, which luckily it went, and it starts a massive amount of noise and sparks and smoke and dust and all the rest of it, and very distracting, and it throws up a bit of a, a, a smoke screen, both visibly and sound-wise. And while this is happening, of course, the guys in the cash van are just sitting there bored. There's, I think, um, two in the front. They're armed and one in the back armed, three altogether. And while all this is happening, guess what? The bad guys, the road crew, they have got a key to the key on the back of the van. And this is the key to the whole robbery. This is the inside mail. They have managed to get a key that fits the lock on the back of the cash van. 
and they are able to open that cash van while all this noise is going on outside, while the armed guards are quite distracted and, and off, off guard, and jump in to the cash van with their guns out, handcuff the three people in it. One of them steps into the driver's seat. They crack a couple of jokes. They're very smooth, very polished. They said, don't worry, we won't hurt you. They made jokes about one guy wearing a good wristwatch. They didn't want to scratch it. They said they wouldn't scratch it and they said they wouldn't steal it. They said, what do you think, we are thieves or something? Uh Uh-huh. And having handcuffed these three guys in a matter of 10 seconds at gunpoint, they drive the cash van along up the slipway a little way and then turn left into Cremorne. There's a one-way street there, but they can turn in. They drive into Cremorne. They drive down uh, about 50 metres and they turn right into, I think, Belmain Street, where the infamous Cherry Tree Hotel was in those days. It's no longer infamous. It's a wonderful place now. And they go along there under the railway line. This is the old Dennis Bruce Allen territory in the bad old days. And they turn right into a very quiet little side street that has got big brick warehouses next to it. And there they transfer. 2.3 2.3 million out of the back of the cash van into a waiting vehicle and away they go. And as we all know, nothing was ever seen of them again. Now, the police soon had a fair idea who might have been behind this because by a process of elimination, they worked out who it wasn't. They knew it wasn't this guy or this guy or this guy because various people had alibis or whatever. And rumours do get around the underworld and so on. And at some point, the police got a whiff that this was a very uh, well-oiled crew of guys who would get together every now and again to pull a big robbery. They didn't do many of them, but when it mattered, they would do it. And then they would go back to their workaday lives of running gymnasiums or normal jobs, whatever they might do until everything was quiet and then one day, maybe two or three years later, they'd pull another one. And this group was, in that sense, sort of like an Ocean's Eleven crew. It was a bit like the gang that they put together in the film The Sting, except these guys were not sort of harmless con men. They were very dangerous blokes. And it would appear that these guys were, by and large, former martial artists, uh, kickboxers, really, and they all knew each other through the kickboxer fraternity. They were all guys who could take someone down with their hands and feet, very good at it, good at teaching it, disciplined, fit, not big drinkers or users of drugs, very similar in many ways to the sort of people you might imagine would be coaching in martial arts or teaching martial arts to police or to army personnel. They're those sort of guys. They had that sort of commando attitude which permeated everything they did. And one of these guys, one of that group, we can now say was Percy Lanciana. Percy Lanciana, who 27 years later was actually convicted and sentenced of this very heist in Melbourne last week. How did they catch Percy Lanciana without catching the others? Well, good question. The short answer is that 
eventually these guys had to move some of their black money through the system. It turns out that some of that money was marked or known. The police knew the serial numbers. And at some point, Lanciana had decided to move some of his share on these large notes through the system. And he would use patsies, people that were sort of semi-legitimate people, to move various amounts of money through the system and get the money changed, essentially. It turned out that the police were able to trace one of these transactions to a particular bank or financial institution, and therefore they were able to trace it to the person that had done the transaction, and therefore one would think, and no one can say this because no names have been published and never will be, you would think the police were able to put their arm on an insider who knew Lanciana well enough to be trusted by him. And the police were able to lean on that person, not only to reveal what they knew, but to carry a recording device and record Lanciana making certain admissions about the robbery. And that essentially is the crude version of how Percy Lanciana came unstuck all these years later. But I'm here to tell you that Percy Lanciana, like Ange Gooses, a former kickboxer and a very good one, Lanciana was well known on the kickboxing circuit as Percy No Mercy. He had been very good, I think he was a middleweight or welterweight, not overly big but very dangerous, very good at what he did. But he has a very sinister past because people close to him sometimes die. And one of the people close to him who died was his very young wife. Many years ago, Percy Lanciana was married to a young woman. I think she was a young migrant girl that he met when he was teaching martial arts at a school in the western suburbs. And he was a young guy of maybe 20, 21. She might have been 17. He married this girl, I think she was Hungarian, and they set up house in Werribee or Hoppers Crossing, one of the outer suburbs in those days. Meanwhile, he continued to be a kickboxer and he also ran a pizza place in Chapel Street in Paran or Windsor. And during that time, for whatever reason, a very bad thing happened. Percy's young wife, I think her name was Mariana, was home alone apparently with her with their little boy who was probably only uh, a toddler, I think he was 12 months old or 18 months old, just a youngster, in the next room and she was shot dead while she was lying in bed. And it was a crime that has never been solved. But it would appear, of course, that the police would have to eliminate Percy Lanciana from their inquiries, first of all, because naturally you go to the nearest and dearest to find out if they've done it. And they said, well, where were you, Percy? And he said, well, I worked late at the pizza parlour, which was an alibi that was provable. And then I was offered a shift at one of the nightclubs on the door after midnight, and I accepted that because I needed the money. And he, he would often do those sort of jobs, I do believe. He accepted this shift on the door of a nightclub, he says, 
and then he said, oh, I'd been working so many long hours uh, with the double shift that I couldn't really face the long drive home to Hopper's Crossing or Werribee. And so I just crashed at my parents' place in Seddon, I think it was, and that's Footscray anyway, one of the districts of Footscray. He went there to his parents' house, he says, and he slept there, he says, and therefore he was not home during this tragic incident when someone went to his house and shot his wife in the head while she was asleep. The police noted that there was no signs of forced entry, there was no signs of a struggle, and so it would seem that whoever did this at the Lanciana's house had easy access to the house, as well as access to a handgun. You would think not a burglary gone wrong. You would think more like an actual execution. Mariana Lanciana was killed in July 1984. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. Interestingly, in September 1981, there was a very similar death of a relatively young woman in the suburb of St Albans near Sunshine. This, at the time, for no good reason, was written off by the police as possibly a burglary gone wrong. The odds against it being a burglary gone wrong are about a million to one and drifting because the short version of what happened is that this woman, Anchi Jones, uh, she had a German first name, Anchi. Her second name was Jones because she was married to a man called Clifford Jones, a man that she was divorcing. He was an older man, a man who owned a service station or a garage, and she was leaving him, and there was some friction between the two. And indeed, Clifford Jones had already taken up with another younger woman. And Angie Jones was in fact just visiting Sunshine from interstate. She'd come back from interstate to do some business to do with the divorce. She was staying at her brother's house in Sunshine in September 1981. And while she's asleep there during the day or having a lie down, someone climbed over the back fence entered the back door and shot her at very close range with a handgun. Now, how the then head of the Melbourne Crime Department, Phil Bennett, known as Fat Harry, could dismiss that as some sort of burglary gone wrong is beyond belief. It was clearly a hit, as was the hit on Mariana Lanciana. And one suspects that the police are now looking whether there are any links between those two murders, clearly both carried out by a cold-blooded killer. Now, if you want to read more about this case, please look it up on heraldsun.com.au slash Rule. troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. 
Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.